Ever notice there is a very fine line between being courageous and crazy? Very fine line. One of my favorite stories is told of a couple who loved the outdoors. They would go camping on a regular basis. And it wasn't unusual for the gentleman to wake up early in the morning before his wife did. And she would, he would go out for a run. So one particular morning, she woke up, rolled over, and sure enough, her husband was gone. He was outside the tent, and she figured he was out for his early morning run. But something was different this morning because she heard, some kind of, he, she, she heard a noise outside that was very unusual. And as she was waking and trying to hear what was going on, she heard some things get knocked over, and then she heard a commotion, and then she heard something like it was grunting. And she peeked outside the tent, and she saw her husband being pursued by a large grizzly bear. And he was running around the camp or the picnic table that she had, they had set up. And uh, the bear was in hot pursuit, and he was running as fast as he could. And his wife looked out just as a bear was about ready to jump on his back, and she yelled, Watch out! And her husband, in all the confidence in the world, looked over and said, Don't worry, honey. I'm one lap up on him. (laughs) Courageous or crazy? You know, a lot of times it depends on the person looking at it, whether someone's courageous or crazy. And it reminded me of the account that we're going to read this morning in Acts chapter 21. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 21, and we'll start with verse 1. And I'll explain what I'm thinking when it comes to the confusion often in life as to whether a person is crazy or courageous. In Acts chapter 21, starting with verse 1, we read these words. It says, And when it came about that we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city." And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship again and then returned home. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days... A certain prophet by the name of Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and delivers him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when he had heard this, we, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered and said, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and started on our way to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us with Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of longstanding, with whom we were to lodge. (coughs) Throughout the history of the world, there have been many men and women who at the time of their actions were considered crazy by others. But in hindsight, the 2020 lens of hindsight, were looked back at those actions and were deemed to be courageous and not crazy. At the time, they were crazy, but hindsight proved that they were very courageous people. One such man was Martin Luther, who on April 16, 1521, entered the city of Worms and was greeted by over 2,000 folks who came to hear him defend himself against the accusations that he was a heretic and what he was teaching was contrary to that of what was being taught at the time. Many of his friends warned him not to go for his life was in great danger. And it was to his best friend and confidant, George Spalatin, that Luther wrote these words. He said, I shall go to Worms, though there are as many devils as tiles on the roofs. On April 18, 1521... 
They had to get a hall that was big enough to accommodate the number of people who came to listen to his defense. In fact, there were so many people there that no one sat down except the emperor himself to hear what he had to say. And in that particular meeting, this was the dialogue that took place between Martin Luther, the Augustine monk, and a a gentleman by the name of Johann Eck, who was the Archbishop of Tyre. And here's Eck's words to Martin Luther. He said, Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than all of they? You have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the blood of the martyrs and confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church in which we all, (coughs) our fathers, believed until death and gave to us as an inheritance, and which now we are forbidden by the Pope and the Emperor to discuss, lest there be no end of the debate. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Martin Luther's thought looked at him and said, Since your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recount anything. (coughs) For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. It was probably the greatest moment in the modern history of the world. How did Martin Luther come to such heroics when you consider the opposition that he faced? (coughs) He was a man that stood before the leaders of his day, and basically, the people of his time thought he was crazy. Martin, are you nuts? Are you crazy? I mean, don't you see what kind of danger that you're in? Don't you realize that we have the power over your very life? We could put you to death as being a heretic. You're a crazy man. How did Martin Luther stand so courageously against such opposition? The answer is very simple. He knew the will of God. He knew God's will. He knew what the scriptures taught. (coughs) Excuse me. He had spent quite a bit of time in the word of God while a monk in Wittenberg and through his subsequent encounter, personal encounter with the living God in Bologna. He had knelt down in Pilate's stairway, staircase, And he prayed that God would reveal to him the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He was convinced that he knew the will of God. And what made him so courageous was not only did he know the right thing to do, but he did it. He did it. He knew the will of God, and he did it. At the time, he was crazy. In hindsight, he was courageous. You know, courageous commitment stemming from strong convictions is an essential quality in all whom God leads. I want you to consider for a moment just some of the examples that are given to us in Scripture as an example for us to follow. Consider, for example, Joshua and Caleb, who argued forcefully for an immediate invasion believing that God had given them the land despite the opposition of ten other men who went with them on the same journey to spy out the land and to check out what's going on as far as the enemy was concerned. Ten of them said, hey, you're crazy. These people are giants. These people outnumber us. We have no chance of beating them. But Joshua and Caleb said, well, wait a minute. We are fully convinced that God has given that land to us. And therefore, God will be with us. An immediate invasion because of the courage of two men that others thought were crazy. It's interesting, despite all of that, there were those who continued to argue against him. Deborah urged Barak to lead the Israelites against him. Such was David's conviction also that God would grant defeat as far as Goliath was concerned. David was convinced that God was not going to stand by idly 
and let Goliath profane his name and his people. And all the rest of the nation stood by and cowered in the sight of Goliath. But David did not. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought before Nebuchadnezzar and the idol that he had fashioned in his own image and told the people if they didn't worship it that they'd be thrown into a fiery furnace. See, they were, con- they were so convinced it was God's will not to worship any idols made by the hands of man, but to worship the one true God and were willing to act upon it, <coughs> even if it meant being thrown into the fiery furnace. Their answer to Nebuchadnezzar when he said, well, can your God protect you from this? Their answer was simple. Sure he can. But if he does, decides not to, we're still not going to worship your idol. So convinced that what they believed was accurate, that they had the courage to live out their convictions. And then Daniel, thinking of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel did the same thing. He continued to worship and pray at the time that he had established in his own personal relationship with God. Even though the king's edict was that anybody who was found praying to anybody else or any other god would be put to death. And they knew exactly what time to find him and where he would be and what position he would be in, kneeling before his god. And he knew that he would be thrown into a den of lions if he did not stop doing that. But he was so convinced it was God's will to worship God that he was willing to be thrown into a den of lions rather than to give in. Every one of these cases, when you stop and think about it, the people in their lives and the people around them thought all of these folks were crazy. Crazy. But the Word of God records that they were courageous men and women. Read Hebrews chapter 11 and the courage of the men and women that are listed there. Every one of them at their time, the people around them thought they were crazy. But it turned out that they lived courageously, for they walked by faith and not by sight, trusting the word of God, knowing as God revealed his will that it was clear to them and convinced. They were convinced that now that they knew it, they would have to then live it. See, Acts 21 shows us that the Apostle Paul stood in the same line as those saints who held such strong convictions. He was a man who knew and then did the will of God. A man many thought to be crazy at the time, but truly courageous in hindsight. And it's from this passage that we're going to learn four aspects of living courageously for the Lord's sake. And the first thing that we're going to take a look at is that to live courageously for the Lord's sake, if you look back at verses 1 through 3, the courageous person always has a clear understanding of his or her purpose. You can't live out your convictions if you're not convinced that your convictions are right. You've got to understand your purpose. You've got to understand the reason behind it. Because I'll guarantee you that as soon as opposition comes up and you don't know your purpose and you don't know your mission and you don't know God's plan and His purpose and His, uh, and His will, you'll always back down. But when you know the will of God and you understand the purpose of God or the plan of God and you know how you fit into that plan and purpose... When you understand that, it's the beginning of living a courageous life for the Lord's sake. In verses 1 through 3, we see that Paul was a man who knew and did God's will. There was no doubt in his mind that he was to go to Jerusalem. This is what this is all about. He was to go to Jerusalem and he was to minister to the church that was there, even though such service would come at a great personal expense. If you remember, if you go back to chapter 20... It says in verse 22, it says that, And now behold, bound in the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except one thing, I do know this, that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. Saying, you know, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, so I don't totally know what God's will is in this case. I'll find that out when I get there, but one thing that I do know is that God wants me to go to Jerusalem I've got a strong sense of God's purpose in my life, and I'm going to go there. And the reason that he was going there was he had been for a year taking up a collection, an offering, from all the churches that he had established and the number of Gentiles that he had come in contact with to help the mother church in Jerusalem. He had a strong conviction that he was to go there and to help them and deliver these funds that were raised through God's people. He also knew that when he went there, there was another purpose in going there, and that you got to understand that he was, if you remember, the greatest persecutor of that church. One thing that we all need to understand is a person who genuinely is born again, who comes to the faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, 
and comes into a new relationship where they're born again, they're new creatures, old things pass away, all things become new. One of the things that you'll find is that from a scriptural, biblical standpoint, there'll be evidence. And the evidence is objective. For example, in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus said, as he had come to faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior, he said, Lord, if I've defrauded anybody, if I've cheated, and it wasn't if I have because I'm not sure I did, he's saying if and since it's so, being a tax gatherer, I know that I'm a thief. And since I've stole money from people, I am going to go to them and give them back four times what I have taken. I will make right which I have done wrong. I've got to believe there was a sense in Paul's life where he knew he was one of the greatest persecutors of that church and that he personally was involved in tearing it apart. He personally was in hearty approval of the murder of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And he was going to go back to that church and take them money and not only to take it as an offering from all the churches, but as his own offer of humility. And you know what? I'm sorry too for what I did to you. And I want this to be a sign or a token of that restitution in my heart. See, there's always objective evidence. And he was convinced that it was God's will for him to go back to take the funds that he had raised, to go back and to make right the wrong that he was involved in, and to go back and to build up the church that was there in the midst of persecution and let him know what God was doing throughout the world. He was convinced that was God's purpose for his life. And because of that, he was able to live out those convictions. Think for a moment about the examples that I gave you a second ago. Conviction presupposes a clear purpose. Joshua and Caleb had to be first convinced that God had already promised them the land before they would say, hey, let's go after them even though they outnumber us 10 to 1 or whatever. It doesn't really matter. We're convinced that God did said what He said and we're going to act upon His Word. David Convinced that God wanted him to worship him and praise him as the only God, the true God, the creator of the universe, the one who deserves all of our praise and all of our worship and and it should be glorified in our lives. And when man's laws interrupt God's specifically instructed will, it is God's will that we must do rather than obey, obey man. We obey God rather than man. So Daniel first had to be convinced that God's will was for him to worship him. And now that he was, he was also convinced that if it meant that he would die for doing so, that that too was the will of God. The same with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If it was God's will that they died for being obedient, so be it, that is the will of God. Paul was convinced God led him to minister to the church in Jerusalem, and he would do that. Paul went about set about to do what he said that he was going to do. And I like the action words that we see here. Notice it says that, hey, when it came about, we had parted. They, had, they, it was, they were torn away from the group that was there. They parted. And, and they went, they set sail. They ran a straight course. They kept sailing. You know, there's action that's involved. So many times I hear believers who say they know the will of God, but they never act upon it. Jesus often said, you know, don't just be hearers of my words. But do it. Live it. Every one of us know when we're dealing with one another in our relationships, the easiest thing to say is, I'm sorry. The easiest thing to say is, I love you. The easiest thing to say is, blah, 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 blah. Whatever. Those are easy things to say. Demonstrate it with our actions. And then our, our words become much more credible. That's why they challenge Jesus. What's easier to do? Say your sins are forgiven or, or tell this guy to take up his pallet and walk who's never walked. He said, in order that you may know that I can do both. Walk and now your sins are forgiven. Okay, what's the deal? His lips and his life were, were in unison. They were in harmony. There was no contradiction. Paul knew the will of God and he set out to do it and accomplish it. And as you look at the map that he has, you'll notice basically what he's done is he's leaving from Miletus. And he's going to follow, if you can see that, if you can, it's kind of tough. And then, you know, for those who can't really see the overhead really well, I would encourage you to move up sometime. There's actually seats down front. You know, I, I, I get like little notes like, I can't see from the back. You know, what, what do you want me to do, come and sit next to you? I mean, I, I understand that, you know, there's some problems sometimes there, but, you know, you might want to take some action yourself. But, um, 
But this is where he started. He started in Miletus, you see that. He goes to Cos first, which is the first stop. Then he goes to Rhodes, and then he goes over to Patera. And then he goes down to Tyre, which is this city right here. Ultimately, he'll end up in Jerusalem. And the thing that I like about looking at maps and understanding what's going on, because oftentimes we read words in the Bible, and we don't really understand that there's actually you know, a real place, real time, real people that are doing these things that have been recorded for us. He set sail. We went on a straight course. He kept sailing. He took action, and he was determined to accomplish and reach his goal. You know, one of the things I love about the writings of the Apostle Paul is that you'll notice that he had a certain sense of determination. He knew what God had called him to do. He knew the message that God had entrusted him to share. And he was going to be determined to do that which God had told him and entrusted him to do. And nothing was going to stop him. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, run with endurance the race that's set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. What you're saying, you know, all of those verses encourage me, hey, know what God wants you to do and be determined to do it. Know the will of God and then act upon it and get it done. Nothing was going to stop him, as we'll see in this particular passage. Question I have for you in a personal application. Are you wrestling with a crucial, crucial decision in your own life? Are you wrestling with a tough choice? This story gives insights in how not to be derailed or sidetracked in following God's direction for your life. This wasn't a princess cruise tour itinerary, by the way. You know, and we'll be getting off in Patera, and there's some great leather goods you'll find there. You know, it, it wasn't that at all. And uh, so we need to understand that there was a lot of effort involved in being obedient. There was a price that was paid invo- involved in being obedient. This wasn't smooth sailing. He set the he he set a he set a set about the sail, straight course, kept going. But this was not an easy journey, as we'll see in a second, because what will happen is this. When you understand God's purpose and you're determined to accomplish it for the Lord's sake, I will guarantee you that you will run across some potential obstacles. And that's exactly what we find in this particular passage. There's going to be some potential obstacles. Now, what I would ask, if, uh, if it's okay if you do this, you might want to turn the lights back up again because I don't want anybody getting too terribly comfortable in the dark. And so the potential obstacles were laid out before us. Notice in verses 4 through 6 back at chapter 21. It says, after looking up the disciples, it says, we stayed there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Notice that. When we came to, in, in sight of Cyprus, it was off to the left. They got the tire. From there, the ship was to unload its cargo. And so after looking up the disciples, they have a stop on the journey. And he wanted to redeem the time wisely, take advantage of the fact, hey, we got a week before the next ship sails to where we want to go. And so the most natural thing for Paul to do was, having already endured a routine journey up to this point and time-consuming stops along the way, when he got there, he looked, uh, for, he looked for believers that lived in that particular area. He went out and sought him out. <coughs> Wasn't sure where he'd find him. Started to ask around, hey, do you know anybody who's come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know where they meet? Do you know who they are? Do you know where they live? And, and sought him out. And wanted to spend some time with him. And during the course of those seven days, knowing Paul, I'm sure he taught them God's truth. Knowing Paul, I'm sure that he built them up, encouraged them in the faith and their walk with the Lord. You know, consider how to stimulate one another, love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together. Got together and, you know, said, hey, you know, what's going on? How you doing? What can I pray for? What can, what can we pray about? What issues you're dealing with? Hey, what, what's happening here? And began to teach them biblical truth. You know, he faced serious obstacles. And we notice that from what we see here. Notice in verse 4. It says, I'm sure in their time together, Paul began to say, hey, look, you know what? I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and here's why I'm going there. And they said, hey, you know what? Praise the Lord, man. We'll be praying for you. That's great. Follow God's leading in your life, man. You got the convictions. The Lord's leading you. Woohoo! Go do it. Wait a minute. Is that what they said? Look what they said. They kept telling them not to go. They're saying, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Do you know what you're going to face when you get to Jerusalem? We've heard. They're waiting for you to come back. You're in big trouble if you go there. They may arrest you. They may may kill you. Stay here. We like you. We're not going to do any of that. And notice this. They kept telling him. They kept telling him. They were persistent. 
No matter how many times you said, no, you don't understand. This is God's will for me in my life to go and to do what I'm about to do. As many times as they, he told them that truth, that's how many times and more that they said, you're wrong, don't do it. You're crazy. You must be misreading it. Notice how difficult this must be. He's already had a tearful farewell from Ephesus. We saw that. These people embraced him. They hugged him. They wept openly in verse 37 and 38 of chapter 20. They prayed together. He had a great relationship. He ministered there for three years. I mean, they were close to one another. He had this tearful farewell. He's gone through this long trip just to get to where he is. And now, just before he's going to arrive at his destination, the people in his life say, You know what? We think you're wrong. You're nuts. Now, and we look at it because the phrase, through the Spirit, kind of throws us off. Well, it's saying through the Spirit. Well, that was God warning Paul not to go. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. Everybody got together and said, hey, we've been praying about this. You know, you've told us this like three or four days ago. We've been praying about it, talking it over among ourselves. And, man, we think you're making a mistake. So this phrase, through the Spirit, kind of throws people off. And was it God telling him not to go? And the answer would be, no, I don't believe that it was. And I'll tell you why that is. Because this wasn't the first place that Paul heard that persecution awaited him. I've already read to you the example in Ephesus where it said, hey, I know this, no matter where I go, God's Spirit's always warning me that I'm going to pay a price for my obedience to the Lord. But the the question I have is, what's the option? Think about it. You and I are always going to pay a price for being obedient to God. Well, what's the option? Be disobedient? So he said, no matter where I went, I've heard this everywhere I've gone. This is nothing new that I'm hearing from you that, you know, that I'm not to go. So he struggles with this. And these people, you know, are sincere, but they're also sincerely wrong. And we know that because later in Jerusalem and later in the book of Acts, we're going to find out that Paul, looking back on this, said that I know that I'm in the will of God. He said, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. I've run the race. He knew that he did exactly what God called him to do. And if this was a time where God was warning him not to do it, then he would have not later been able to say, hey, you know what, I did everything I knew God wanted me to do if there was any contradiction about the direction God was leading. The Spirit of God does not contradict the the, the mind or the will of God, for God is one. So when the Word of God is leading us in a direction and the Spirit of God living within us is saying the same thing, He has to because that's God. That's who He is. He doesn't contradict Himself and He doesn't lie. So it's important that we understand these obstacles that are there. You know, the question you've got to ask yourself is this. Why did Paul encounter pressure from his friends to go against what he knew to be God's will? Why did he encounter pressure from his friends... To go against what he knew to be God's will. And I want to share this as a principle for each one of us to understand. His friends demonstrated the all too common inclination of being quick to know God's will for someone else. Isn't that amazing how that is? It's always easier to see God's will for someone else. And they were saying, hey... It's not, that's not God's will, even though you've become convinced that it's God's will. And even though everything that you're telling us doesn't contradict anything that God has already revealed to us, it's a lot easier for me to see God's will for you in your life. And, and what I learned from that is this. There are many aspects of God's will that we know with clarity that apply to all believers. What is God's will for mankind? God's will or his command to all of mankind is that man repents of sin and turns back to God. What is God's will for mankind? He wills that none should perish, but all come into an everlasting uh, life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's God's will for all of mankind, and yet man has the freedom to choose. It's God's will that we abstain from sexual immorality. It's God's will that we don't lie, that we don't cheat, that we don't steal, um, that we honor our mother and our father, that we, you know, that, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourself. You know, it's God's will that in everything that we give thanks. It's God's will that, you know, and that we pray without ceasing. 
Those are all things that apply to every believer. That's God's will. And so when we see somebody who is not living according to the revealed will of God, we can, with authority of God, say, it's not God's will for you to be doing that because God has very clearly revealed that that is wrong. God's will is that you tell the truth and not lie. God's will is that you have sexual relationship within the confines of, of a heterosexual monogamous uh, marriage. It's God's will that you know that you don't cheat and that you're not lazy and that you work hard for that which you have. All of those things we can say in confidence to those who struggle with understanding, well, what's God's will? That is God's will. On the other hand, we need to avoid making snap judgments or offering some spiritual formula with what matters in God's will for us as individuals. You know, Peter, James, and John, you know, in the story of Jesus uh, talking to Peter saying, do you love me, this, that, and the other thing. And he's saying that you follow me. And, Peter, and God's will or plan or purpose for Peter's life was different than God's purpose for John's life as far as God was concerned in accomplishing what he had for him to accomplish towards the kingdom of God. When Peter said, but what about him speaking of John? Jesus said, mind your own business. Don't worry about him. He has a responsibility to know my will and do it. You have a responsibility to know my will and do it. Don't worry about what other people are doing. You follow me. And the call is always the same. You can't come to Christ based on taking up a sampling of what your group believes. Jesus called people out of the crowd and said, you follow me. And he didn't give them time to ask around if it was something that, oh, should I do it or shouldn't I do it? Are you going to go down front? I mean, like so many, you go down front, I'll go down front. What is that? If you're going to do it, I'll do it. Hey, that's nonsense. If God is moving in your heart and has revealed his will to you, you act on it. Regardless of anybody else. And what Paul's teaching us here is that, you know what, no one else wanted him to do it. But he said he knew what he had to do and he was committed to getting it done. This obstacle of resistance Paul experienced had to be rough on him. You know, think about it. For seven days he had spent time with these people and he had grown close to them. Lynn and I have experienced that when we've gone to speak at conferences or seminars or retreats or weekend experiences. And you get to know people. They open up their hearts and you, you can share from God's word and you teach and you sit and you talk and you have lunch together or dinner together or spend time together and people that have been involved in helping plan it. And so we've spent a period of time and now it all comes to fruition where we're all together at the same place and same time. We experienced that last summer when we did the hockey ministry in upstate New York and you spend time with people and you're only there three, four days maybe. But by the time you're done, you feel like you know, your heart's getting torn out. You know, you're saying goodbye to people that you know this side of heaven you'll probably never see again. And it's like getting your heart torn out every time that you do it. Now put yourself in Paul's position. His heart is getting torn out everywhere that he goes. He knows what God has called him to do, his purpose in life. He's convinced that that's what he needs to do. And he's set out to do it. He's determined to get it done. And all these people did was make it harder for him to be obedient. They made it tougher on him. Think about how confusing all of this must have been. In, in verses, uh, in, back in uh, chapter 21, notice it says, we were there seven days. They kept telling us not to go. You know, but the reality of it is, I know what God's will is. I know what he wants me to do, and I'm, gonna, I'm set out to do it. It says, when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey. While they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city and kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said goodbye to one another. Then we went on board the ship. And they returned home again. Can you imagine what he, had, what he was going through? He had become so close to them. And then they brought their wives and their children. And everybody came down to the beach so he could load up on the boat and he could wave goodbye to them. It's like, ha oh, man, you're killing me here. And at the same time, he's probably going, I'm glad I'm getting away from you people. You have not made it any easier for me to be obedient to God's leading in my life. Because he had already known the third aspect that we're going to look at, and that was this, that you know what, there is a price to pay for obedience. There is a payment required. We're not always sure what that payment is, and Paul was very honest about it. The Word of God tells us, hey, I know everywhere I go I'm going to suffer something, but I don't even know what it is. One time he was stoned, left for dead. Another time he was dragged into prison in Philippi and thrown into jail. He didn't do anything wrong. I mean, everywhere that he went, man, stuff happened to him. 
There's a payment to, to be paid. And, and if you look at verse 7, he says, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. After greeting the brother, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day we departed, came to Caesarea, entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven we were introduced to in Acts chapter 6. Stayed with him, his daughter, he had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there, for some days a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own feet and hands, said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Notice that. He gets to this point. It addresses one of the most misunderstood the Christian life. And that goes something like this. Now, the way I see it, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. We're going to miss you. We'll be deprived of your ministry here. And so, it really can't be God's will for you to go and suffer when you can stay here and be effective as a servant of God. If Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. We're going to miss him. That can't be God's will for him to go to Jerusalem. One of the most misunderstood principles of the Christian life. Let's clarify it right now. This thinking speaks powerfully to our American culture. And what I mean by that is this. Herbert Hendon says this, it's no accident that at the present time, the dominant trends in psychoanalysis are the rediscovery of narcissism, basically self. This society is marked by self-interest, egocentrism that increasingly reduces all relations to this one question. What am I going to get out of this? What what do I get out of it? What's in it for me? See, God, if I'm going to be obedient to your will, what's in it for me? That's not anything new. If you remember, Peter asked Jesus the same question. He said, hey, you know, we left everything. We left our business, we left our family, we left our friends, we left everything of comfort to follow you. What's in it for us? Jesus looked at him and said, hey, listen, let me tell you something. Whatever you think you've given up, I will restore to you a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. We got a day that's ahead in the future when we're in the presence of God that no matter what sacrifices we think we made here on this side of eternity will pale in comparison to what God has to offer. Oswald Chambers expresses this this way. He says, to choose to suffer means that there's something wrong. You got to be crazy to want to suffer, is what he's saying. He says, to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, that's a totally different thing. See, no healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. I don't want to choose suffering. But I know if I choose to be obedient to God's leading in my life, that suffering will come with part of the package. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. It's it's crazy to say, Lord, I want to suffer. Bring it on, let me suffer. No, that's, that's nuts. That's crazy. But to say, Lord, I'm committed to do your will, regardless of whatever payment is required of me. See, God has not saved us to be happy. God has saved us to serve Him. See, God has not chosen us to be comfortable. God has chosen us to be obedient. The disciples argued often about which one will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus looked and said, Are you willing to drink of the same cup that I'm going to drink? And they said, oh, sure we are. But they didn't understand when they said it. <coughs> you know, I want to get personal for a moment and just kind of share with you from our, from our own experience that when you know God's leading in your life, you know, there's really only two options. One is obedience and the other is disobedience. That's all I've broken it down to. I can't see of any others. You know, almost six years ago, uh, Linda and I were approached to uh, be the chaplains for the Angels baseball team. And we had already, for eight years previous to that, worked with the Los Angeles Rams when they were here before they moved to St. Louis. And we worked with them up until the time that they left and and went to St. Louis. 
And, uh, and we knew what was involved in that type of ministry. We knew the, the triumphs and the tragedies and the heartaches and all that goes with it. We've seen men and women come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We saw them begin to grow in their faith only to be traded or released or have an injury that ended a career. We saw them, young men and women, uh, get married and was involved in, in that aspect of their life. Some of them stayed long enough to have their first or second child. But all the time we knew that our ministry or our relationship with them on this side of eternity was temporary because they'd be leaving. You know, they came and gone. That's the nature of that ministry. And so it was always difficult to develop relationships because we knew as close as we got, the people would just tear our hearts out when they had to leave again. But we knew that that's what God wanted us to do, to introduce those men and women to forgiveness through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw him do mighty things. But we also stood many times and cried in many different places to say goodbye to people we came close to. So six years ago, when we were asked by those who head up Baseball Chapel, and one of the guys flew out, and one of the other gentlemen that's on the board of directors, we met over at the Doubletree Hotel in Orange, Linda and I. And we sat and we talked for a couple of hours about you know, what the possibilities would be for us to do that. And I knew as we sat there that God opened this door and he had prepared us for this moment. And that we were prepared to do what needed to be done. But I looked at Linda, and I'll never forget the look on her face as she looked at me. And I said, are you ready to go through all that again? And she just smiled, and she just nodded her head yes. It's like, what's your choice? What's your option? To say no because you want your life to be more comfortable? Or to say, Lord, no matter what the price is that we have to pay, it's nothing compared to the price that the Lord Jesus Christ paid on the cross. See, we've been bought with the price. The precious blood of Christ upon the cross. We owe Him everything. And every gift that He's given us, every ability that we have, we're to use and to serve Him heartily as unto the Lord, for it's the Lord God whom we serve. Every gift that you have is to be exercised in His service for His kingdom and for His glory. And as difficult as all this is, there's not an option available other than disobedience. And there's nothing easy about any of this. You know, 13 Sundays a year, over the course of a season, we do chapel. 13 Sundays a year, I do the angels and I do a visiting team. For the last six years, that's been the routine. Now this year, I've asked the same question and working with the Ducks hockey team and, and we're doing that. 13, 13 Wednesdays, Wednesday mornings, we meet and have Bible study. And that doesn't include other Bible studies during the course of the week that we'd have or other Bible studies that Linda's involved with with the women. It doesn't include any of that. For 18 years, I've taught here. We've ministered here. You know, 18 years, 48 weeks out of the year. I don't know, that's 800 and some times that, you know, I've stood before people and shared, hopefully, truthfully, honestly, the full counsel of the Word of God. And let me tell you something. There's a price to pay for obedience. While a lot of you take every other weekend off or weekends off or go on vacations or do the things that you do, you know, we're committed to be here for the other people that are here. There are a lot of times we could have gone on vacation. A lot of times we could just go away for the weekend. There are a lot of sacrifices that have to be made. And you know what? And, and I, I, I have never, and, and those of you who have been here have never heard me talk about any of this. But it's important in light of what we're discussing from a context. From a context. And that is, you know what? There's always a price to pay for obedience. God has not saved us to be comfortable, but He has called us and gifted us to serve Him and bring glory to Him. You've got to ask yourself the question, do you know God's will in your life? Are you doing it? Are you faithful to do it? Being obedient is often not convenient nor comfortable. And some of you know how difficult, because I see some faces of some people that know because they've been there with us. They know how difficult it can be to be faithful in your service to the Lord. In a world that is at enmity with God. People that hate God, hate the word of God, and hate your very presence in their sight. But to be faithful and show up and do what God's called you to do. See, I know, I can relate to Paul. Because I know that he knew what God wanted him to do and nothing and nobody was going to stop him because he lived to please an audience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I need to live to please an audience of one, 
and stop worrying about what other people around us think. But when you know God's will for your life, do it. Payment required. Now turn with me for a second. We've got a minute to, to look at this. Matthew chapter 16 kind of puts this all together. <coughs> and it came to mind as I was studying this passage because in Matthew chapter 16, you're going to see that, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ knew the will of God, the will of the Father. He came straight from heaven to earth to go straight from earth to the cross. And in Matthew chapter 16, the Bible tells us he came to seek, in Luke 19, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. That he would not be deterred, nor would he allow obstacles to prevent him from going to Jerusalem and be handed over to the enemy. And to be put on a cross and die for our sake. Knowing three days later he would be raised from the dead. He knew God's purpose in his life. He was fully convinced of the will of God, the will of the Father, was for him to come and to shed his blood on our behalf. Now, if you notice this, in Matthew 16, in verse 21, Jesus began to tell his disciples that that was God's purpose and God's plan. It says, from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He knew the will of God. He knew the plan of God. He knew the direction of God. He knew and he said, hey, I just want to warn you ahead of time. I'm going in Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be offered up. I'm going to die on the cross, but I will rise three days later. So, you know what? Don't worry about it when it all happens because God is totally in control. But now notice this. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Why didn't Peter want it to happen to Jesus? He thought he had his best interest at heart. But he didn't have Jesus' interest at heart. He didn't have the will of God at heart. He had his own personal agenda at heart. And his personal agenda was, you're going to establish your kingdom now. Haven't you heard us arguing all the time about which one of us would sit at your right or your left? We've already got it all planned out. If we have to, it'll be best two out of three. We're going to arm wrestle, but we're going to work it out. One will be at your right, one will be at your left. But this is our plan for you. That's where all of us mess up. We all have plans for God. But God says, no, let me get this, let me, let me remind you. You, I made. I made you. I am the potter, you are the clay. You ever see a lump of clay sit in the desk before somebody actually makes it into something or whatever they put it on, easel, whatever, countertop, whatever. You ever see a piece of, you know, a lump of clay, you can see, I'm, uh, that's a, it's not a sports illustration, I'm struggling. <laughs> But, but if you ever saw a, a lump of clay sit there, have you ever heard a clay say, I'm thinking about being a vase. Please don't make me an ashtray. I mean, it just doesn't happen. You don't see that. It doesn't happen. It's like, and, and, and I'd like to be a vase because that's more expensive than a vase. Maybe I'll go to a nicer house. You know, that doesn't do that. The clay doesn't tell the potter what it wants to be. The potter says, I've made you, I've created you, I've fashioned you, I've given you life in Jesus Christ, and I've gifted you. Now use those gifts for me. Are you? See, Jesus said, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Kind of ties it all together, doesn't it? Are you setting your eyes on God's interests or man's? See, because look at the response that Paul had. Hey, let me just tell you something. I am willing to be bound, and I am ready to even die if that is God's will. But I am going to Jerusalem. Now notice when you get back to Acts chapter 21, it says that, man, you know what? It says, and when we heard this, in verse 12, Agabus said, hey, he took his belt, tied him up and said, this is what's going to happen to you. But you'll notice that Agabus never said, and God doesn't want you to go there. God doesn't want you to experience that. He was just telling them, this is what you have to expect. So be prepared. So when they heard this, notice this, we, everybody, his best friends, Dr. Luke included, tried to talk him out of it because it can't be God's will for you to suffer. Now, Jesus had already said, 
If you want to follow me, take up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow me. Listen, it's God's will for us to be obedient. And if obedience brings suffering, then guess what? Listen carefully. Then suffering must be the will of God for us in that particular instance. You got it? There are a whole bunch of people saying God came so you'd be happy. God came to take all your suffering away. God came to give you a Rolex and a brand new car. You know, God came to deliver all this to you. And nowhere in the word of God does it say God sent Jesus Christ into this world to die upon the cross so that you and I who believe in him will have eternal life and forgiveness from God. He raised him from the dead. He is alive today. He sees what goes on. He is a just God who will reward us for our faithful service. And he will also avenge the wrongs that are done in this lifetime. He will take care of it. Vengeance is mine. I will pay, say the Lord. But if you're obedient, you may have to pay a price. Paul said, I am willing to suffer. I am willing to die. Sound familiar? Joshua and Caleb. Hey, we're going after it. And if we die in battle, it doesn't matter because it's God's will. He's already given us the land. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. It doesn't really matter. God's will is that we don't bow down before any other gods. We're going to worship our God. And if we die in the process, so be it. That's the will of God. But we'll be obedient. We're not going to be comfortable. We're not going to be comfortable. And the last thing is this. I want you to notice something that is awesome about courageous people. You want to know what's awesome about courageous people? They persuade others to be courageous. Isn't that great? Notice what it said. It says, Luke, everybody was trying to talk him out of it. It says, in silent, and look at, and since in verse 14, he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. The guy knew God's purpose in his life, and they finally all got the point of saying, man, we can't change this guy's mind, so God's will be done. Man, this is exciting stuff. They went from trying to talk him out of it to be so excited about the fact that God's will was going to be done. This man was obedient to the Lord, and they now wanted to be a part in helping him to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that great? Listen up as we close. A crazy person determined to do the will of God regardless of personal cost is God's chosen method for turning this world upside down for Christ's sake. Ready? A crazy person determined to do the will of God is God's chosen method for turning this world upside down for Christ's sake. Courage is contagious. Let me read you a story of the Civil War as the Battle of Antietam. One of the bloodiest days in military history. September, on a September day, 1862, nearly 6,000 Union and Confederate soldiers were killed, 17,000 others wounded. To put it in perspective, the casualties at Antietam numbered four times the total suffered by American soldiers at the Normandy beaches on June 6, 1944. More than twice as many as Ameri- more than twice as many Americans lost their lives in one day at Sharpsburg as fell in combat in the War of 1812, the Mexican War, and and the Spanish-American War combined. Some of the fiercest fighting on that awful day took place in part of a battlefield known as the Cornfield. Some Union soldiers, their ranks decimated by heavy Confederate fire, fled toward the rear in wild panic, only to be stopped by the contagious courage of one man. Here's the description. The Pennsylvanians broke and ran again, to be stopped incomprehensibly a few yards in the rear by a boyish private who stood on a little hill and kept swinging his hat shouting, Rally boys, rally! Die like men, don't run like dogs! They all turned around and were running and this little guy was standing there with the hat going, Rally boys, rally! Die like men, don't live like dogs! I said, awesome. You know what happened? They all turned around. And they continued to fight side by side. And it was, the, it was one of the turning points of the Civil War. A boy embarrassed men. A boy, a shepherd boy by the name of David embarrassed soldiers because he was sold out to obey God's will for his life than he was to be comfortable or worry about the price that he'd have to pay. A little boy. Rally, man, rally. Woo-hoo! Turn around because you ain't going to see no battle like this ever again. You might die, but at least you'll die like men rather than live like dogs. See, notice this. It says they got ready and they started on. Rally, man, rally. 
do the will of God in your life. Live like men. And I live like men and women of God rather than die like those who have never experienced what it's like to walk in the will of God and to pay the price for obedience. It's awesome. In closing, I want to throw some things out you to consider. Because this whole idea of considering God's will or seeking God's will can get confusing at times. Let me just give you some uh, practical suggestions. Number one, as you consider the word of God, the, the will of God in your life, always seek good advisors. What I would say, godly counselors. There is safety in a multitude of godly counselors. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't react too quickly. Consider, seek wise counsel. Now, what goes hand in hand with that is this. That counsel should come from the Word of God. God's will, in many cases, is very clear. There's no sense praying about it. There's no sense asking anybody else about it. What do you think I should do? It doesn't matter. It's what God's already revealed and what He said. It's case closed. It's done. He's not changing it for you. So go to the Word of God, and whatever God's will is, He will reveal it very clearly. I'll give you an example of a woman who was asked to marry a gentleman. She wasn't really sure if that was what God's will was for her life. She took a week off of work, she took her Bible, and she spent a week searching scriptures, praying and seeking God's direction. Because she knew if anyone lacked wisdom, they would ask of God, and God would give generously and above reproach. She took a week off, prayed, studied the Word of God, before she gave an answer. That's a wise woman, and that's a very wise way of making decisions. The third thing that you need to realize is that, you know what? God's will may not be what you want. God's will may not be what you want. But we got to be at the point where we say, but God, you know what? Not my will be done, but yours. I like the story. Many of us are like the little girl who wrote an honest thank you note. Here's what she wrote. Thank you for your present. I have always wanted a pincushion, but not very much. That's pretty good. I'm kind of like, I'm a little torn by this gift, you know. I always wanted one, but not that much, you know. I would have rather had the bike. You know what I mean? And, and, and we're like that. You know, it's funny in kids, but we're like that. God reveals His will when we go, but uh, I want to do your will, but not that much. Hey, you know what? That's not an option. And the last thing is this. If you know what God wants you to do, do it. Do it. Don't sit and consider all the reasons it won't work. Don't sit and consider all the reasons that will be, you know, uncomfortable in your life. Don't sit and write down all the things that are going to have to change in your life. Don't sit and consider any of that. Just when you know God's will, just do it and trust Him that, you know what, He'll take care of those obstacles when they come. Remember the story, don't cross the Fox River until you get there. If you know the will of God, do it. There were undoubtedly others in Luther's day who knew God's will. But what made him a great man who changed history is that he did something that they would not do. And we remember him, but we don't know none of them. So if you know something that God's requiring of you and you've been hesitant, then do it. You know, walking by faith and not by sight, persuaded by the word of God, is crazy. To a world that doesn't know our God. It's nuts. Think about it. Moses. He's leading the people out of Israel. Out of Egypt. He gets to the Red Sea. He goes, follow me. And they're looking at him like, you're crazy. So I'm just telling you, God led me to this point. I'm not real sure what's going to happen here. God tells me what to do. The next thing I know, woo! Sea opens up. Here we go. We're marching through. Everyone's sitting there going, like, man, that was crazy, but this is cool. Crazy but cool. God's crazy but cool. You know what I mean? And they went through and they did it. Think about Joshua. Convinced God gave him the land. Here's the battle. Here is the battle strategy of the day. Come on out. Oh, bring your horns with you. This is crazy. We're going to march around and keep marching around. And when God tells us, we're going to all blow our horns. And we're going to win. And they're like going, you're one crazy dude. I mean, you are crazy. Yeah, I'm crazy for the Lord. I'm crazy for the Word of God. I'm crazy, but watch this. And all the walls fell down. 
And we're still talking about it, how crazy it must have been for those people. Hebrews 11, everything they did was crazy, according to the world, but courageous, according to the Word of God. That's walk by faith, folks, and not by sight. Though others may think we're crazy, live courageously for the Lord Jesus Christ, and to Him be all the glory. Father, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the faithfulness of the Apostle Paul, who was determined... To accomplish your will for his life. He knew without a shadow of a doubt what you called him to do. And he was faithful to do it. Even though well-meaning and sincere and even friends came alongside and tried to deter him from doing what you had called him to do. God, I thank you for guys like Dr. Luke and those who were with him. Who once they realized that, you know, your hand was in this and nothing was going to change it. They jumped on board and said, then, hey, to God be all the glory. Let's get this thing done. And they were there for him. They encouraged him. They built him up. And they followed courageously because courage is contagious. God, may we become men and women who are courageous for the Lord Jesus Christ so that others will follow. And as they follow us, they get closer to you. And we just thank you and praise you and give you all the glory for the crazy things that we'll do for your kingdom. Amen.